This semester we're doing the book of Genesis. Welcome back to RUF. Um, If you were not here last week, I kind of said what my goal was for the first couple of weeks. And and it was actually this. It was actually for everybody to have an existential crisis. We're all actually all having existential crisis all the time. We're just lying to each other about it. I want us to actually talk about it up here, but also um, outside of this group. Um, We're reading Genesis, uh, and what Genesis is, is it's a book written to Israel while they're in the desert, trusting or trying to trust God to be faithful and and bring them to the promised land, and yet always uh, being tempted toward idolatry and tempted uh, towards abandoning God and abandoning uh, trusting in Him. And Moses is writing, and he's starting from the very beginning, uh, of saying like, Listen, you've got to understand what the world is. And so he begins in the Pentateuch in Genesis, and he's handing, the Pentateuch was given to the nation of Israel while they're in the desert, while they're wondering why they're having an existential crisis. And he just starts at the beginning, and that's what we're doing. And what I want to happen as we ask hard questions and struggle with hard questions is to really rebuild our understanding of, uh, of reality, of creation, of humanity. Uh, and what we said last week after we read the creation account is that uh, according to Scripture, the purpose of creation is actually to be delighted in by the Lord. Um, and this week I want to ask the question, of essentially, of what does it mean to be human? I'm going to read Genesis 1, 26 through 31. I put Psalm 8 on there because it's one of the other places um, where just kind of humanity is pondered and what God thinks about humanity. I'd encourage you to read it. But I'm just going to read from Genesis 1, 26 through 31. This is during the creation week. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth of day. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, to ponder what it means to be human is a huge question. Um, Our day is filled with so many details and so many decisions. And all of those details, all those decisions, all those thoughts uh, are us trying to live out humanity. And um, I pray now that uh, your word would speak into our lives in a practical way, in a helpful way, dear Lord, that we wouldn't just ponder um, spiritual, ethereal concepts that are fun to think about, but rather, dear God, we would begin to recover what it means to walk out of this room um, and to enter in to grab ice cream together, to go to school tomorrow, to choose the clothes we choose tomorrow. I pray we'd understand what it means to be who you intended us to be. In your name we pray. Um, last Thursday on Facebook I put a question up as my status update and it was the question was actually the title of a book of essays by a great writer named Wendell Berry called What Are People For? and um, I got several responses I thought that would be an interesting way to introduce the idea Um, 
So we're reading an iPhone at large group, <laughs> which is awesome on so many levels. Um, Britton Wood, question, what are people for? Lee Drummond, whom some of you know, um, Soren's best friend. His answer is fuel for the matrix. <laughs> uh, Patrick Rivers, uh, our camper over here, to cause, <laughs> to cause traffic and take up parking. So, people are for inconveniencing Patrick. Um, <laughs> I know him well enough that I can say that. Don't worry if you're new here. I'm not going to single you out and pick on you. But I'm going to pick on Patrick for a little bit. Um, Michael Bennett gave us the pious answer. He's right. Uh, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Um, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, Jake Adams, his answer reads like a John Mayer song lyric. Um, To cause global warming, AIDS, revolts, fly planes into buildings, war, starting forest fires, traffic women, and many other horrible, horrible things. Well, that's what it seems like. Where's our humanity? He's going to be a singer-songwriter, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> in case you didn't pick up on that. Uh, Patrick responds in uh, continuing pessimistic tone. I would say that is our humanity. Brian Meesmer gives us, and he's proud of himself right now. <laughs> Y'all rebuke him. He needs to repent of pride later on tonight. Y'all be good friends to him. Uh, but it is witty. Brian Meesmer, maybe in order to understand mankind, we have to look at the word itself, mankind, because basically it's made up of two separate words, mank and eind. <laughs> what do these words mean? It's a mystery, and, that, and that's why so is mankind. So... That is the wisdom of your peers. Uh, <laughs> but the question is, what are people for? What does it mean to be human? And, um, and we can answer that in philosophical ways, and we're going to do in biblical philosophical ways. We're going to do that a little bit. But um, I want us to enter into and ask that question of our actually own daily experience. What is your daily experience of being human? What is it really? Because we can give good answers at different times, um, and we can talk and wax philosophical about it at times, but um, I think one of the biggest struggles we have with being human is that essentially we live a life inside of our head and we live a life outside in the world, and there's noise between the two, and we don't know how to deal with it. We live this massive thought life and, uh, and then it, it, that we live in and we, we contemplate and, uh, and a lot of things, and we meditate on different ideas, and you know, prayer might or might not be part of it. Whatever it is, we live inside our heads, and we live outside in the world. And there's noise between those two aspects of our life. And um, and I think it's hard to figure out what it means to be human in light of that, because we live the way we live our inner life. Sometimes uh, we also think of our spiritual life as primarily an inner life. As we can articulate some religious ideas, but they mostly take place in like private moments in silence in our own head and we profess a religion that actually has deeply outward consequences for us to say in our minds Jesus Christ is Lord has massive cosmic consequences for everything you do from here on out and so we say that in our head but outwardly the way we live our life there's just this dissonance right between the two there's this dissonance between the life we dissonance we have between the life in our heads and the life outside and it's not just in religious ways um, and I think we're afraid of dealing with that confusion. 
And what we really want is we want to find ways to silence the noise of that dissonance. We want to find ways to actually become comfortable with that dissonance because it's so confusing and it actually very, makes us feel very insecure. And our outward life is actually in, it, it's, it's incomprehensible too. We, we're kind of working to play is essentially the way we live life and playing never really satisfies. Um, we have this drive to work and to produce um, but with no real kind of meta-narrative, no overarching story we're pursuing, we're just doing. Most people went to college because that's what you do. You know, that's just what we do. We actually never thought about it. We've never thought past the next three steps. Something I said last week, which I felt like a heaviness come out of the group, and I said, what are you doing? Are you just making money and succeeding so you can save up to die? And like when I said that, <laughs> I think it got everybody's attention. But I mean, in some ways, we're not thinking past the next... <coughs> One or two steps. And so we think about work and we have this inclination to work. Uh, Elizabeth and I watched this CNN broadcast about um, this guy who made a ton of money in the real estate boom and then lost it all last year. And uh, it was really interesting because the interviewer said uh, the guy made a ton of money and then he kept risking it. And the guy said, why did you keep doing it? And he said, well, because I kept seeing good investments. He goes, no, no, no. Why were you trying to make more and more money? And the guy said, I don't know. Because they have more money than he could spend at this point. Most of us actually don't know why we're working. We actually don't even know why we're trying to make more money. So we have that confusion about work. We also have confusion about relationships, the other side to kind of our outward life. We desire to connect with people. You come in here, you judge every group you come into, whether or not you're warmly received. That's okay, you can do that. Um, but you came in here and you're like, oh, are these people going to like me? Am I going to connect with these people? You come into individual relationships. Do I like these people? Can I connect with these people? Some of us have been like so hurt or so disappointed by relationships that we kind of trot out this I don't need people ethos, which is kind of understandable because you've experienced real pain. But saying I don't need people is just the way of saying I wish that I could, I wish that I could connect with people, but I've been hurt so badly I'm scared to get back in relationships. It's actually still crying for a relationship is what it is. Um... Our outer life is just as confusing as our inner life, and there's noise between the two. Why? What are we? What is are, we are we physical beings? Are we spiritual beings? What are we here for? What we're doing tonight is we're asking what does Scripture have to say to this question? What does it have to say about the fundamentals of just being as a human? And my hope is that this will actually begin to feel a little bit practical for you, um, that it takes into account the everydayness, what, how you really live life every day in and day out. Um, I don't want RUF to be a place where we're sitting in an ivory tower and talking about abstract ideas that are fun to talk about when we pat ourselves on the back for using big words. Um, we want to respect and to speak into the very concreteness of your daily life. And what we see in Genesis 1.26, there's a word that shows up a lot, right? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, which is another word for image. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. The Bible's, the simple, the short answer, we're going to explore it, uh, answer to what it means to be human is this, we're God's image. What it means to be human is to be a God image. What's interesting, in, uh, as the passage begins, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is a very unique moment in Scripture. We are peering into the divine counsel that goes on among the triune God. The repetition of the word image, and plus the mere fact that for one moment in Scripture, God actually says, 
why don't you come in and see what the Trinity and I were talking about before I created you, highlights the emphasis that what it means to be human is to be the image of God. The way a Hebrew writer highlighted what they were, uh, the point they were making is by repetition. And so we have this word image or likeness show up four times in two verses. Moses wants us to hang on that. What does it mean to be an image? And what it means, actually, is this. It means to be priestly kings. Uh, you've heard maybe perhaps Israel is referred to by Peter as a royal priesthood. Uh, Israel's God's restored humanity. When he calls them a royal priesthood, he's talking about them as they were always supposed to be what humanity was supposed to be. And what you see in your outline tonight is that we are representatives and rulers. You see what a priest is, is a priest is a representative between two parties. The priest were representative of Israel to God, and they were actually also a representative of God to Israel. Man is an image bearer, is a priest, but he's also a king, and a king is a ruler. And to get into that first point, first, we're representatives, we're priests. Um, it's really interesting. I made this point with some people a couple of weeks ago. Um, somebody asked a group of students, uh, what is God's primary symbol that he gives to the world to reveal himself? What is his primary symbol? What is the symbol of the Christian God? And more than likely, we go to the Jesus fish, right? That's what's the symbol of the Trinity God. No, we don't go to the Jesus fish. Um, slightly more pious people might go to the sacraments, right? They're wed and wine. Um, but typically we think of the cross. And those are all symbols actually God gives us to communicate something to himself. But what's actually being communicated here in Genesis is that the very, from the very beginning, God's primary symbol of himself to represent himself to the world is actually man. It's actually humankind. In the creation account, you have this let's make God in our image, and when it's done, it's in our image, male and female, in our image, actually, a society. There's this sense in which it's not just one man. It, the, every one of you is an image of God, but there's a sense in which we understand uh, the image of God even more richly as a society, as a culture, as a community, let us make man in our image. And then it finishes, God created man in his own image, and the image of, he created him, of God he created him, male and female, this dual gender society. Man was made to represent or actually to symbolize God to the creation. That's what mankind was made for. See, Moses is speaking into a specific context where they immediately understand the words he's using. We hear that word image and we think about um, you know, pictures, whatever it is, whatever our kind of a common conception of image. But when they heard that word, they knew what he was talking about. Images in that day were statues. We have all the archaeological evidence of statues on the bottom of the statues we have today, whether they're statues of foreign gods and foreign deities, of Ramses, of Caesars, whoever it is, of Pharaohs. It all says an image, or the other word they use on the bottom is a likeness of Whatever, on the bottom of all of those statues. So when the ancient Israel heard this, that's immediately what they heard from Moses. God said, uh, let us make man in our statue, right? A statue like us. A representative of us. That's what statues do. They represent people. Throughout the Old Testament, this word shows up again. It shows up in Daniel 3 when Nebuchadnezzar makes an image for all of the nation to bow down to. It's a representative of the king. It's a representative, sometimes it's a representative uh, of a deity. Something that is made like 
that deity or like that king for the purpose of symbolizing him to the world. That a statue serves a purpose. It is to proclaim the king. This is huge because what the Bible is saying is we are actually like God. We are his representatives to each other and to nature. And you, feel, you might feel like that's kind of like a grandiose statement because it is. But you see, even in our own experience, even in our broken and our fallen or our imperfect understanding, our experience testifies to the reality that what we are is that we are something royal. We are something like God. Because everybody weeps harder over the death of a man, woman, or child than they do over the death of a plant or an animal. It's not wrong. That's our souls testifying the fact that the, the loss of human life is somehow more egregious. And we try to say that man you know, is an accumulation of molecules, an accident. There are different ways we try to figure out how man came together. Um, you know, again, just kind of things came together by accident. But no one acts like that when a loved one dies. Uh, our actions betray us and reveal that even in our broken or incomplete understanding of what it means to be human, there's something deeply, horribly evil about the loss of human life because nobody is at peace with death. We say that it's natural, but nobody feels or acts like it's actually natural. And it's another area, actually, where we profess on the outside something that's not really who we are on the inside. If the purpose of our species actually was merely to preserve and improve our species, then wasting grief and resources on weak and helpless and dying people would actually be foolish. They're of no value that it should be a drain on our resources. But see, we can't help but hate death and even fight against it because there's something deeply wrong about people dying. In Haiti, I read an article today about they have mass graves there because there's so much death. In Haiti, they practice voodoo religion. And um, one of the things, one of the aspects of that they've developed is they spend a ton of money on their grave sites. And so these mass graves, people just are broken over these mass graves because in Haiti, they said a lot of people actually spend more money on their grave site than they do on their house. It's because they're deeply in touch with the fact that something's really wrong about death. In America, we handle it differently. We handle the wrongness of death differently. Actually, what we do is we ship it off to nursing homes, right? When people are in their last years. We can't handle it, so we put it away from us. None of us have seen dead people. I mean, I, I know some of you have, but I'm saying for the most part, we ship off dead and dying people. That's actually a testimony to the fact how uncomfortable it makes us feel, how unnatural it is, how there's something deeply wrong about the loss of human life. It's because we're like God. It's because we're royal. Our experience actually reveals what the Bible teaches. There's something weighty about being human. And what does this mean for us? What it does is actually contradicts two different errors we fall into. It keeps us from two different errors. Um, I read an article uh, by a theologian named Richard Pratt, and he talks about this story he heard about. Um, there was this hotel in Chicago several years ago that was holding a, um, a New Age conference, this kind of empowerment, self-betterment thing. And uh, the title of the article is actually called The Irony of Being Human. And in this hotel in Chicago, these people were having this conference and they were getting all fired up for being better and being more committed and all that kind of stuff. And the chant at the end of the conference is, I am God, I am God, right? You set your mind to it, you do it, you bend this life around you, uh, I am God. And in the same hotel, several floors up, at the moment while they were chanting God, a woman actually killed herself. 
the reason she killed herself is because she left her husband and her children to meet her lover. She like leaving her husband and children permanently to meet her lover at that hotel. The lover didn't show up. She wrote a note, and she said, it said, um, don't cry for me, I'm not even human anymore, and killed herself. On the bottom floor, you have people saying, I am God. On the uh, three floors up, you have a woman saying, I'm worth nothing. And you see, we gravitate between those two poles. We typically live in one of those two poles, moving back and forth. In some discussions, we, you know, it has no purpose, you know, um, in, in, in whether it's kind of in those philosophical moments where we're saying, you know, humanity is, is this accident, or in those kind of more existential moments where we feel worthless. And then in other conversations, in other instances, we're asserting our ideas. People have to agree to us. We want the world to wrap around us. Guys do this kind of by brute force. Girls kind of do this by manipulation. It's much more subtle. Girls are better at it. Um, and well, guys are meaner at it. Girls are more subtle at it. Y'all are smarter at it. Um, but those moments where we're getting everybody to agree with us, where we're asserting ourselves, you have to agree with us to be with us, and bending creation uh, in the world around us. We're trying to be gods. And we bounce back and forth between being worthless and essentially asking the world to worship us as gods. And what this doctrine does, that we are images of God, is it prevents us from both of those errors. Because first of all, it gives us glory. It gives a certain weight to being human. The way C.S. Lewis says it uh, in The Weight of Glory is he says, you've never met a mere mortal. You've never had a conversation with someone who is immortal, uh, who is mortal. We're, more, we're royal images, representatives of the king. And what you think of someone's artwork and how you treat someone's artwork is what you think of them. What you tr- think of someone's self-portrait is what you think of them. How you treat their self-portrait is how you think of them. In LSU, when Alabama played LSU, was it two years ago? They burned an effigy of Nick Saban, Right? That reveals what they think of Nick Saban. Track, yes, okay, a couple of laughs. <laughs> the way we treat other individuals is the way we think of God. We are God's representatives to each other. This actually means Christians hate racism. Christians hate classism. Christians hate sexism. It means we're on the forefront of all those battles. That's what that means. It means that we weep and that we pray for and that we give money for Haiti. Anything that denigrates another person is a denigration of God's self-portrait. Anything that harms another person undoes us. So who is it that is worthy of you despising them? Because they look a certain way, because they act a certain way, because they talk a certain way. That's God's self-portrait. Go order at Pizza Hut or at Taco Bell tonight, you're looking at God's portrait when you're ordering pizza. When you argue with your roommate, your parents, when you complain about your teacher. See, this understanding gives us a great weight, a great glory to being human, but it also gives us humility. It produces humility. Because when you begin to fool around with another guy or a girl, and use their parts of their body, do it with this in mind. When you look at porn, what are you looking at? This humbles us because these are God's images and they're royal. They're actually God's artwork. 
So how are we going to treat God's artwork? Some of the biggest arguments in our house right now, our girls love to draw, they love to paint. Some of our biggest arguments is when one sister desecrates the artwork of another sister. We have tears over it. When people destroy your handiwork, your artwork, it says a lot about the way they think about you and they value you. The way we treat each other, this is why the commands to love God are always linked to the commands of loving your neighbor. You can't love God and not love your neighbor. It's because the way you treat someone's artwork is what you think of them, especially when their artwork is actually their image of themselves. We are God's representatives. What are we called to do? We are priests. We represent God to each other and to the world. What are we called to do? We're called to rule. And we get this, uh, these kind of mandates or commands from creation. God blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. There are kind of two, two motions here. There's the be fruitful, multiply, fill. And there's the subdue and have dominion. And the first one, the most interesting thing is actually verse 28. It's the first time God communicates to man, actually speaks to him. Notice God's first words. Be fruitful. Picking up on what God's saying here. God's first words ever to humanity, have lots of sex. The Bible is actually not anti-sex. It's actually extremely pro-sex. The reason we feel at odds with the sexual ethic of Scripture is actually because it's very pro-sex and we're very anti-sex. The sexual ethics of the Bible is actually God not wanting us to not have fun. It's actually God wanting us to have the best sex. That's what the sexual ethics of the Bible describe. Let me ask you a question. What do you want to do? Do you want to have sex with a thousand different partners or one partner a thousand times? See, each person's different. Each person's unique. Each person's like a different instrument. And it takes you a while to get to know them. Who do you think has a richer and fuller love and enjoyment and appreciation of music? Someone that plays one instrument a thousand times or a thousand different instruments once? Our fooling around the ways we're sexually broken. I don't want to harp on this. This is actually what I want to talk about on that. Besides being sin, it's actually just laziness. It's actually settling for, for, for bad sex is actually what it is. But beyond that, what's he getting at when he talks about I don't want to spend time on that. Be fruitful, multiply, <laughs> fill the earth. We'll talk about it more later. You can ask me questions. Um, we are representative gods. We're statues that actually proclaim who he is to the world. In the ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, culture, these statues served that purpose. Everywhere, they were everywhere. When you see the, uh, um, I saw the Ramses exhibit, I think it was at the National Museum in London. What the exhibit mostly is, is different statues of the Pharaoh. They just had hundreds of them. They were everywhere. They were all over the land. They covered the land. This is the context, again, that the Israelites are listening to this passage in. When a king expanded, expanded his rule and his reign, what he would do is he would make more images and place them to the new boundaries of his kingdom for the purpose of saying, this land right here, it's mine. This image is a reminder of who I am. I reign here. When God is saying, fill the earth, multiply and fill the earth, he's actually saying, remind all of creation of who I am. That's what he's actually saying. 
And so what they would do is they would place a huge statue of the Pharaoh in every town square. And when civil servants come to perform civil duties, tax collectors come to collect tax, they would sit under the statue. Because while they sat under the statue, that statue, that image, proclaimed the power of the Pharaoh. The statue actually has power. A tax collector had more force to do what he had to do. People responded to what he was asking to do when a statue of the Pharaoh stood behind him versus when there was no statue. God's command to Adam and Eve is not merely to have sex, and it, but it's kind of glorious that he coupled his first command with one of the most pleasurable things we do. His command is to actually make more images of them and place them in all of creation. And it wasn't that creation wasn't already his. It was his, and he wanted to mark it as his, and he gave us the task to do it, the sweet, wonderful task to do it. His intention was to create more Im- for us to create more images of him and fill the creation that all of creation knows who the king is. But we're not just supposed to fill it, we're supposed to subdue it and have dominion. Last week we read the account of God's creation of the world. In the first two verses, he creates the raw materials, and then from there he goes out and he shapes the raw materials into things. He forms it and he crafts it and he makes it beautiful and he makes it habitable. And now there's this natural world. And the next thing he does is he makes a man, and the man is an image of him, meaning... That the, that man is something like him and something not like him. But it represents him to the world. And he gives the man this command, subdue and have dominion. In chapter 2, verse 15, we see that God made the garden and then puts Adam there to work it and to serve it. The word there for working it and keeping it is actually the same word for slaving. It's actually to serve the garden. What he's talking about is he's talking about stewarding and shepherding and crafting and enculturating and beautifying the physical created world. That's what it means to be human, is actually to live in this world, to engage the physical world. Now, we don't create in the manner that he does, speaking things into being out of nothing, but we're called to take creation as it comes to us and to craft it. Even Adam, before the fall, before things were wrong, God said, tend to this garden, serve this garden. It was still actually work to craft and make creation beautiful, to subdue it and to have dominion over it. And that that's, involves a lot of things. One of the things that involves is understanding it. One of the things Adam goes on to do next, is one of his first moments, is learning about all the animals. God passing all the animals in front of him and him learning about it, beginning to understand creation. When they talk about Solomon in 1 Kings 4.33, who's the wisest man in the Old Testament, one of the things they remarked is about how he actually understood creation very well. Education is actually part of what it means to be human according to the Bible, to begin to understand creation. This is good. It is a calling from God to understand the world. But we're not just supposed to understand it, but to care for it. Again, Adam's called to care for it. He's called to subdue and have dominion and to take care of the garden and to craft it, to do what God did, to take it and to make it into something beautiful and something functional. As representatives of God, subduing and having dominion is doing what God did. And there are a couple of applications. The first one, don't freak out about this. The first one is actually concern for the environment. I'm not going to harp on this point. Don't listen to what I'm not saying. Don't trust Rachel Maddow and don't trust Glenn Beck. Don't trust Kim, uh, Keith Oldman and don't, don't trust Rush Limbaugh. Um, I'm not saying buy into a political party. I'm not saying this is not a political comment. Um, I don't know if you sh- should recycle or buy a Prius. I don't know. I mean, I understand those are debates, okay? Um, if you believe in the Bible, you should deeply care about creation and making it beautiful. 
I don't know what that looks like. It probably means we actually need to critically engage those issues a little bit better. And it's kind of lamentable that Christians just get lumped with the conservatives who don't care about creation. We should kind of grieve over that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm just saying, being a Christian and taking the Bible seriously means we care deeply about the creation. That's all I'm saying. That's another one I don't want to talk about. (laughs) Because this is what I do want to talk about. This is what it also does, and this is, I think, what I hope can be the most helpful for you. It demythologizes the Christian life. The Bible says that the physical world is God's handiwork. And it is the place where you are made to reside and flourish and make it flourish. Your physical life is your spiritual life. Your outer life is no less a part of who you are than your inner life. What you do with your hands, in your class, in work, with your friends, is spiritual. What you do in your head, in the privacy of your own uh, home, that's good and that's spiritual too. It's no more spiritual than what you do in your regular physical life. God made you to be a physical being. You are not just a soul. When God made humanity, and uh, when he explains a little bit more about what he did with Adam, he said he crafted the dust of the ground and then he breathed the breath of life into him. Guess what makes up humanity? The dust and the breath. The spirit and the physicality of it. And God made both of them. He gave man the breath of life. He also made the dust. What it means to be human, what it means to be spiritual, is actually to be very physical. I'm not saying it doesn't have anything to do with what's going on in your heart. What I'm saying, it has everything to do both with what goes on in your heart and what goes on with your hands and with your feet and with your eyes and with your nose and with your body. Your spirituality is lived inside and outside. We have this tendency in Christian life and, uh, to kind of say that the outside is bad, that creation is bad, that we need to withdraw from creation. From the very beginning, we said it last week, and I'm kind of harping on this again. The physical world is God's, and it's good, and it's actually the place where you're made to live. Now, what does this mean? This means a Christian lawyer who seeks justice and works hard is more spiritual than a bum without a job that reads his Bible for six hours every day. The teacher who educates, the insurance salesman who sells a product that helps people in a time of need, the developer who plans a development for the purpose of fostering community and connectedness, the journalist who actually informs people truthfully about the world around them, It's not impressive, it's actually spiritually immature to not work and live in this world and think that because you have this powerful meditative life that you're super spiritual. You're not doing what God called you to do from the very beginning. Our life's lived out here in this physical world. What I'm not saying is I'm not saying don't read your Bible, I'm not saying don't have devotional. I'm saying it's foolish and wrong to think that what you do with your body is any less spiritual than what you do with your heart. You're not just your body and you're not just your heart, you're both. And we want those to come back together. In, verse two, in chapter 2, verse 7, man is man when both the physical dust and the breath of life come together. God made the dust and he breathed the breath and they're both from God. And man is not man without both. That's why the resurrection is instrumental to understand Christianity. If the resurrection wasn't something we hung on to, If the resurrection wasn't something God did, then God actually would have to concede defeat. If all it was that we were saved in this ethereal spirit world, then what what would be communicated is God couldn't save it all. He couldn't make it right. He could only make it a shadow of what it is. He's not defeated. He fixes internally. He fixes outwardly. 
And the reason, Christians, the reason I think we start wrongly hating the physical world is not actually because the physical world's bad. It's because our hearts actually start to worship and abuse, use the physical world not for what it's intended for, that's abuse. And everybody hates the things they abuse. Sociologists always talk about how many of the Germans didn't hate the Jews and then abused them. Many of them abused them and then hated them. I think the reason we're so Christians get so messed up about this understanding of the physical world is actually because we abuse the physical world, so we start hating it. And we retreat from it. It's not the creation that's bad, it's us. It's us that messed it up. We worship the gift instead of the gift giver. I mean, the two richest experiences we have in life, the, one of the best experiences is when you've worked hard and you've produced something good, right? And you want people to notice it art, paper, a case, a design, whatever it is. Um, and the second richest experience, um, that, but perhaps more rich than that one, is when you bring life into this world. Those are the things we're made to do. That's what's being talked about in Genesis. Filling the earth and multiplying and having dominion and subduing. We can't think of our work as Christian or as spiritual because... Uh, we, we think it's something that we do that sometimes we need God to come and be our assistant for, and the opposite's true. God is using us in His work, and that changes everything. If you're using God in your work, then He's not the goal of it, and it's not His, and He's merely an assistant that we throw out some prayers for so He can help us get an A and come alongside of us to help us do our work. If God is using you to do His work of crafting creation and making it beautiful, then school all of a sudden actually gets really important in a beautiful way, Right? Instead of mindlessly wading through it with some kind of vague goal of a comfortable adult lifestyle and approval kind of from other people, parents, whatever it is, and a spouse, instead of that being what you're shooting for in this vague sense that you hope it makes you happy one day, um, instead you're a craftsman that's serving the master craftsman. And then the purpose of your service is to be his assistant and is to be his assistant in making creation and culture beautiful to make it lovely, to make it just, to make it peaceful, to make it what it's supposed to be. That's why we need Christian landscapers. That's why we need Christian congressmen, Christian teachers, Christian doctors, whatever it is. People think, one of the, one of the things that I, I don't really understand is people talk about how I just give all the glory to God, you know, the post-game interview and that kind of stuff. I, don't, I always want to know what they mean because I don't know what they mean when they say that. When you win the Heisman, I give all the glory to God. What does it mean? Does God have a mantle? You put the Heisman trophy on? Like, I don't, I don't know what people mean. But I think what we can gather from this text, from an understanding of our calling to work in this world, do our jobs well and produce something good, serve well, is that the engineer who works hard is honest in his work and contributes to the design and the development of a building that's both beautiful and also functional, is doing what called, God called him to do, is honoring God and glorifying God better than the lazy engineer who puts Bible verses in his cubicle. That's the biblical doctrine of humanity, and it binds our inner and outer world together. And together they're both meaningful, but what, uh, both is what it means to be human, but there's a problem because we still feel a disconnect. Because it frustrates us, and something, it feel, maybe you feel there's something right there, and it might seem to make sense, but it's broken. Because our inner lives are still broken, our outer lives are still broken, we subdue and we have dominion for our own kingdom and to perpetuate our own glory and we multiply for our own pleasure.
So we treat other people like objects and our marriages fall apart and our children get hurt in the process. Uh, we forego representing God for the purpose of actually representing ourselves to the world. I mean, when you list it like that, that's a recipe for pain. That's a, rep- that's a recipe for a broken world. The world can't be peaceful in that context. I mean, it's, it's not even wonder that Life is hard and it's difficult and that we feel disconnected. We walk into this room, into every room, and into every relationship trying to hide two things. We're confused and we're scared. And the art of human life now in this broken world, what we're trying to do on campus for these next four years is perfect the art of hiding how messed up we are. We want to dress up on the outside and not let people see the inside. We're actually contributing to the dissonance between the outer world and the inner world. We're scared to tell anybody about who we are and what we're struggling with. We're trying to come to grips with or justify the hypocrisy of our life, and we're all dying to blame somebody else for it. This is the way the Christian life begins to deal with the dissonance between that inner and that outer life. Jesus says, take all the inside stuff and lay it out before me and let me deal with it. You don't have to play the hiding game anymore. You don't have to run from it. You don't have to figure out ways to justify it. I know you read my word, and I know... The things in the Word are hard and they're strong and you're not who you wish you were when you read the law of God. The answer to that is not hiding it or justifying it. The answer is taking it, the worst of it, the most shameful part of it, and holding it out and ask for mercy. And that's how God begins to fix the dissonance between our inner and outer world. That's how He begins to fix humanity. That's how it starts getting right again because He says, now I see your inner world and I offer peace and I offer healing for it. And He takes the judgment for our sins. It's by grace that He created us, and it's by grace that He saves us. You didn't choose Him. He chooses you, and He pursues you, and He gives you faith, and He gives you repentance. What it means to be a Christian is not first and foremost to do the most right things. It means to stop trying to hide your junk and instead holding out your hands and weeping for Jesus to give you mercy. And He loves to give it. He loves to give it. And when you receive it, those cracks between the inner and the outer world start healing. Let's pray.